As the world's largest network of remote professionals, we're here to help. Upwork is giving $1 million in talent grants to projects that counter the ongoing impacts of COVID-19. By connecting existing teams with independent experts in tech, creative, and operations to help save lives, to support communities, and rebuild the economy. Go to upwork.com slash work together to learn more. And welcome to The Price of Football, the podcast that follows the money behind our beautiful game. I'm Kevin Day, and he is football finance expert at Liverpool University, Kieran Maguire. Hello, Kieran, how are you? I'm very good, thank you, Kevin. Rocking and rolling, as always. As always, yes. Um, now, I'm going to let the listeners into a little secret here, Kieran, because we are, we're recording in a new, more efficient way, but it means we can't see each other, uh, which I'm slightly worried about, as I'm just hoping you're not naked as well. <laughs> no, as, as I'm in the front window, um, I'm, and I'm not in Amsterdam, I'm, I'm therefore fully clothed. Uh, so obviously it's um, it's a Monday, so it's our questions pod today. We have some very good questions, uh, but some big news to start, Kieran. Obviously, I think it's put a, the start of a smile on our face. At least uh, we may be staying home, but football's coming home. So the Premier League has announced a date for its return, and it looks like it's all systems go. Uh, yes, it is. Uh, and I, I, I was getting a little bit meh about the return of football, but as soon as they actually announced the dates and the fact that I think on Saturday we've got four games and on Sunday we've got three games, I was I was like a kid on Christmas Eve night. Yeah, it, it was it was genuine giddiness. Um, so yes, it, it's it's good news. I think it's good news for people that want to see some Premier League football live, free to air, because they're going to get that for the first time ever as, as well. So it, it's a bonus. Um, all ninety-two matches are going to be screened. I think the only slight complication I see is on the last day of the season. Um, as always, the matches have to take place simultaneously to prevent. Uh, any sort of uh, artificial results taking place. So how how they deal with that, uh, I'll leave down to the broadcasters. But I think that'll be that's the only particular issue. Um, but yeah, ultimately this is a money show, and sadly the money squabbles have started already. Um, yes, yes, because um, it looks as if the, the the Premier League were in fear of having to give a rebate to the TV companies of around about £750 million. Now, my understanding is that that is going to be reduced to around about £330 million. Um, so, yeah, that's a step forwards, but the squabble is who's going to pay how much. Uh, now, the, the big six clubs, uh, you know, we, we know who the big six are, um, from the start of this season, they get a greater proportion of the the money, uh, which is uh, distributed because they've they've changed the formula uh, as to how money should be divvied up between the clubs. Um, so therefore, if you're on TV more, if you finish higher up the table, you will get more money. But by all accounts, uh, especially Spurs and Liverpool, they're saying, well, if there's a rebate, uh, it ought to be split equally 20 ways, uh, which does seem a bit harsh. What's talking of the, the broadcasters and the money, Kieran? How how does it work? Because we we see now that BBC have got some games, Amazon Prime are showing some games. 
will will they have made their own deal with Sky and BT, or this this is a deal they've done with the Premier League? Are they buying the games from the Premier League or from Sky? And how will they divvy? I mean, I presume the BBC will be watching Burnley versus Bournemouth on the BBC rather than Liverpool, Man United. I'm guessing. Well, I, I, I have heard stories that apparently um, Everton versus Liverpool might be on the BBC because it would reduce the number of people potentially who will go to go outside the stadium. And this is this is one of the things the authorities are concerned about. You know, remember, we are still viewed by the establishment as being the great unwashed, uh, can't be trusted and, and therefore will be up to no good outside the grounds. So therefore, by having it on the BBC, it will allow more people because not everybody, of course, has got a satellite box. Not everybody has got a, a smart TV um, so, so it'll be interesting to see how that one particularly develops. Um, but in, in terms of the negotiations, I, I was surprised that the Amazon have been given more matches simply because they they, they bought um, two groups of games which were due to take place um, around about uh, around about Christmas, so early December, and Boxing Day, and, and effectively that was them out. Um, so you know, I think they've got they've got a, a sort of a bonus just just for the Premier League saying, well, well next season we, we might struggle to deliver matches in front of crowds. Uh, the BBC's uh, got been given four games because they've not been able to broadcast match of the day over the course of the last two months. So therefore that's had an impact upon their scheduling. So it, it seems to be a, a fairly a fairly equitable distribution of the remaining 92 games. Sky and BT already had 47 of them, uh, and they are going to pick up the vast majority of the remainder. I have to say, match of the day has been better without football. It's been it's been really good. Um, yeah, it, it, it's great the football's coming home. Obviously, horse racing is also coming back just in time for Ascot. How's your luck, Your Majesty? Uh, tennis and fishing were the first sports to be allowed. Uh, polo and croquet very much allowed. So I think we we're, we're, we're lucky to have a government where we're all we're all in it together, Kieran, aren't we? Basically, yeah. Well, the snooker's coming back as well. You know, so yeah. no, that's uh, good. That's nice. It's, I, I, I do enjoy a bit of snooker. You could you could really genuinely show repeats from 1999. I wouldn't be able to tell you whether I'm watching. <laughs> uh, anyway, as it, it is Monday, so it is questions, and I um. We've got quite a few people have asked the first question. Uh, Mark Aegis, hello, Mark. How are you? Miss you. Love to the family. Lee Ayres, can't wait to see you in the Pawsons. Richard Foster, keep up the good work. Julian Chenery, my theatrical chum. Uh, as you might gather, these are all fans of the oldest football club in the league, Crystal Palace. Um, they've all asked, along with many other Palace fans, for your views on the release of Palace's accounts. I think we were the penultimate club Uh you got yourself into your usual Twitter spat with Newcastle fans following the release of their accounts. Um, so is there anything to pick out in Palace's accounts? And one thing I did notice, because you sent them to me, which I thought was very optimistic of you. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I did get some way in, but then I got distracted by the cat. I, I, only only 6.8% uh, of our income comes from, from match day. And that seems low even by some of the figures you've been talking about with other Premier League clubs traditionally use you use Bournemouth as the example of the the, the low match day income, but that seems low to me. Am I right to think that? Um, it, it is, but it, it's it's a function of two things. Uh, Selhurst Park has got a capacity of what twenty five and a half thousand. Yeah, um, yeah, that is, I think, is the fourth lowest in in the Premier League. Uh, it's it's also if you take a look at the demographic profile of, of the Palace support base. Um, you're not going to be having a lot of the prawn sandwich brigade. So therefore, 
the the majority of the tickets are being sold to season ticket holders and season tickets at most clubs work out as a pretty reasonable price and it's the same as palace um and, and walk-ups um the, the reason why some clubs have a greater proportion of money coming through match day is simply because they have um, a, a much bigger uh, hospitality portfolio where they're able to charge premium prices. If you take a look at Bayern Munich, for example, um, they, they make as much money from the, the 5,000 uh, the 5,000 hospitality boxes, in fact, they make slightly more than from the, the other 60,000 people that go to matches on a regular basis. Um, now, in terms of Palace going forwards, if the if the new stadium is, uh, expansion is approved, um, I think they're aiming to sell another 3,000 hospitality tickets within that, which should increase that 6.8% um, considerably. Uh, you know, it should, should move up the scale a wee bit. Um, yeah, the, the majority of the clubs in the Premier League, they get 75% or more of their income through TV. So, so Palace are not alone. Um, you know, it, it is... Uh, it, it's it's not it's nothing it's, it's nothing to it's, it's not a negative because it, it shows that the, the club is actually selling prices at at, at you know at, at levels which are accessible to the fan base. Yeah, we'll be talking more about season tickets later. My, my understanding is that when the new stand is built, uh, and there are minor issues to be dealt with, but the the approval has been given in principle. When the new stand is built, uh, all all the hospitality will be in that one stand basically rather than a sort of spread out around two and a half stands as it is at the moment but in general looking at your I think I think your summary basically was mid-table accounts mid-table club basically wasn't it yes I, I think uh yeah Palace are now established in the Premier League they've been there what for now oh, seven whoa, seasons whoa, whoa, whoa. Hang on. that sound is me touching wood okay. <laughs> um but but there, there were there were a couple of unusual things I mean, effectively, last year, Palace lost £100,000 a day for 364 days of the year. And on the 365th day, they sold Aaron Wan-Bissaka, which wiped out all of those losses. So it, it was really important. And, and I think Steve Parrish said this in the strategic report. It was actually important to make that sale. Um, and it was one of those strange sales. They, they sold the player, but they didn't receive any cash at the time, United are playing, paying by, via IOUs. Um, but again, you know, I, I've said to you, I think on quite a few occasions, the majority of the clubs are losing money on a day-to-day basis on the Premier League, in the Premier League, and, and they're reliant on either player sales or owner bailouts to to make ends meet. And Palace are, are no different, or, or or better or worse, I think, than than the, those those clubs. Okay, right. On to um, question number two. And it's from Simon Colebrook. Now, Simon is chair of the Pompey Supporters Trust, which is a very responsible job. Well done, Simon. Uh, Simon's been thinking about the health of football clubs, and he has rather a radical question, I think. Simon's question is, is it time to scrap the football creditors rule? Because it seems to Simon that salary caps, financial fair play, etc., all fall down because of it, and it protects the football bubble from its duties to the real world. So, Firstly, for, for new listeners, maybe could, could you briefly explain what the, the football creditors rule is? And do you agree with Simon? Because I, I know it's an issue that does come up fairly regularly, but I've never heard someone suggest that we scrap it completely. Certainly not somebody from within football. Well, yeah, it, it's, it's an intriguing issue, this. And uh, again, I'm indebted to my, to my good friends at Law in Sport for giving you know, allowing me to go chapter and verse into this. Um, 
if if a football club goes into administration um, or a, a CVA and it comes out of it the other side, it has to pay the football creditors 100% of what they're owed. So who are football creditors? It's other clubs, it's the Premier League or the EFL itself, and it's full-time employees. And that's quite important, full-time employees. So clearly that would include all of the players. If you're a part-time cleaner at a football club on minimum wage, tough. um, But if you're you're a full-time member of staff, now... Does that have benefits? Well, clearly it does have benefits to the rest of the football industry. But of course, it means that if if a club goes into administration, the way that administration works is that the administrator sells the club and he uses that money to effectively divvy out to other people. If more money is going to football creditors, by definition, there there is less money left over to pay other people, including HMRC. And one of the common features we see of clubs going into administration is that they've not paid their tax bills, they've not paid their PAYE, their their national insurance, their VAT for a while. And it does mean that less money is going into government coffers. Um, HMRC, they did appeal this um, in in 2012 and they lost the case. Uh, They tried to say that the the football creditor rule was in fact illegal. It was giving a, a... um, an unlawful advantage to the football industry, but the judge ruled against that. Um, and now the government has come back and, and we've just got new legislation from the 1st of April 2020, um, which will give the give HMRC an advantage. But again, if you're, if you're that part-time cleaner of a football club, unfortunately, you're, you're still at the bottom of the pile. Um, it, should, it, should it be scrapped? Um, I think I think there is a case for saying that because it, it does make it more difficult if you are buying a football club. So if, if you've got a football club which is in a complete mess and you're thinking of buying it, you're saying, well, how do I work out the right price to pay? The first thing you've got to say, I've got to pay the Premier League. I've got to pay the EFL. I've got to pay such and such club for outstanding transfer fees. And I've got to pay the players as well uh, for their outstanding wages that could act as a disincentive because by the time you work out that particular cost, it could be that the price of the club is now looking too high. Well, two things briefly in response to that, Kieran. First of all, my understanding is that the the football creditors rule was in place to prevent a domino effect. In other words, if a club goes out of business and it owes Club X, Club Y and Club Z £30 million each in outstanding transfer fees, then Club X, Y, Z are in big trouble themselves. And And secondly, why... Has football being allowed to make its own? I mean, I presume if you if you own a steel manufacturing plant, the, the rest of the steel industry wouldn't be able to say, right, well, here's our rule. If one of us goes bust, we have to pay each other before we pay HMRC. Would that be the case? Yeah, I mean, this is why HMRC appealed that along that very viewpoint that it was a it was an industry specific rule invented to protect football, but it meant that HMRC and, and other creditors were being disadvantaged. Um, the, the judge ruled at, at the time, and I've not got the case law in front of me, um, that um, he felt it was part of uh, the, the, the benefits outweighed the costs, in effect, and, and therefore it, it should proceed because of the importance of football, but also to protect this, to prevent this potential domino effect, because so much trading takes place between football clubs and other football clubs. Whereas if you compare to the steel industry, 
Tata Steel isn't dealing with German steel companies. They're in competition with each other, whereas football clubs, because they're in a league, they are actually um, sort of complements rather than substitutes for each other uh, as, as far as the industry is concerned. Okay, thank you. Our next question comes from Alex Shields. Hello, Alex. Now, Alex says, I was surprised. Um, Alex, you're lucky. Uh, six months with Kieran, I've lost the ability to be surprised. So I, I envy you somewhat. But Alex was surprised to read that in 1819, uh, uh, that's 2018-19, not 1819, um, Chelsea made a huge operating loss. And Roman Abramovich put... £268 million in loans into the club um, as part of their £1.4 billion debt. He says, uh, Alex's question is, what's in it for Abramovich? And secondly, if he asks for that back, will the club implode? And I would add to that, how did Chelsea lose so much in that particular season, 18-19? OK. Um, I, I think Alex is, in fact, the Reverend Alex Shields. Um, oh. So, yeah, so yeah, he's... Uh, he, he's very keen on the show. Uh, yes, it's a very compliment. So uh, yes. clearly we're recording this on a Sunday morning. So I suspect Alex will be busy virtually talking to his boss and talking to his parishioners and so on. Um, I think, I think but, you'll find he talks to his boss virtually all the time. That's very yeah, I, I, I mean, if you're talking to his ultimate boss, then that's pretty much the only way the Reverend Alex will be talking to his, uh, his other boss. If he's talking about the Archbishop, then of course that probably will be virtually, although from tomorrow they can have a barbecue. Um, uh, I like Alex. I didn't really, I didn't put two and two together. I do apologise. Uh, well, he's not a proper Catholic priest, is he? So let's not be that respectful. But, but yeah. Right. Um, just, I'm what? sorry, I'm just channeling the spirit of my mother there. When. Uh, when we got married in the Methodist Church, as my as my mum walked in very loudly, she said, "This is not a church; it's a scout hut." <laughs> well, funnily enough, yeah, I've I've got a, an Irish Catholic mother, and she I know she didn't turn up to mine. So, or rather, she 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 wasn't turning up to my wedding until about twenty four hours before. And um, uh, yeah, well, let's let's not open that can of worms about your religion. Never mind. In case the Baroness is listening. Anyway, sorry, Alex. This is all a bit of a diversion. We're we're big fans of your work as well, Alex. Um, so, what what's in it for um, Roman Abramovich? First of all, um, he, he gets high profile, and uh, if, if you're a high profile oligarch, that increases your chances of not being poisoned. Um, which is always useful. <laughs> Fair enough. That's a, that's a view, yeah. Um, so so what happened was uh, Roman Abramovich bought Chelsea Football Club for £140 million. Um, as, as Alex has rightly said, he's, he's, he's put in around about 10 times that over the course of the years. Um, if, if he's, he's made no money from it. He could make money, however, if he sells it because the asking price is between two to three million pounds. And uh, Britain's second richest man, it's a billion, yeah, yeah. So but, but by all accounts, that's the asking price. Um, and uh, Jim Ratcliffe, who's the head of Ineos, who runs the uh, runs one of the big uh, you know, cycling uh, organisations in, in the Tour de France and so on, um, he was interested in, in buying the club, but he felt the price was too high. Um and part of the issue with Chelsea is to do with the pitch. Now, this is probably something I've never said before, and I suspect I'll never say again. You've got to give a lot of credit here to Ken Bates. And, yeah, I know. Yeah, You don't see people saying, um, 
Chelsea was was it, you go back to the eighties and the nineties. Chelsea was owned by property developers, and and clearly, given the location of the ground, you can see the benefits of of knocking down the ground and um, turning it into something extremely expensive and extremely profitable for the developers. Um, Ken Bates came in and he set up something called Chelsea Pitch Owners. And Chelsea Pitch Owners, it, it's literally, uh, it, it's, it's owning shares in the pitch. And 21,000 shares exist, but no one person can own more than 100 shares. So this means... To, for the for the stadium to be sold is actually very difficult. You've got to get 75% approval of 21,000 people, many of whom, of course, are diehard Chelsea fans. And Chelsea pitch owners, as well as owning the stadium, also own the name Chelsea Football Club. So if anybody wants to take over Chelsea, you can buy it the club you can try Chelsea FC PLC but you don't get approval to use the name unless you put together a, a presentation to the pitch owners which you know when we've spoken before about you know are there ways in which we can have increased fan involvement Chelsea which you would you would associate you know with one person is actually from a from a sort of historical point of view is protected in a way that very few other clubs are. Um, so, so Chelsea, sorry, Pitch- Kieran, can I just interrupt you? I'm sorry to interrupt. Yeah. It's, it's hard because I can't see you off. Normally, you you can tell the glint in my eye when I'm about to interrupt. But I'm just I'm so reluctant even now to give Ken Bates credit. Now, I just feel like I want to check: was this actually a far-sighted policy on his part, or at the time was it a way of making money in the short term? No, no, I honestly think that at the time it was to protect the club from potentially being taken over by somebody else um, and, and Chelsea fans losing their club at Stamford Bridge and being effectively evicted to somewhere on the outskirts of London, you know, to some sort of uh, you know, identikit plastic stadium which could have been created so uh, you know this this is this is certainly my perception of it I was, I was reading up on the Ch- Chelsea pitch owners Ken Bates probably you know he, he's not he's not he's not father Christmas when it comes to most football issues but I, th- I think here he, he's actually done the right thing uh you know he's, he's quite a spiky character as we know but uh I, I think he has done it so this this does mean that if Roman Abramovich sells Chelsea FC PLC which is the name of the club um they they don't get the pitch as such. They they get to rent the pitch from Chelsea pitch owners, and, and they, they it's it's a pound a year. Yeah, you know, so it's, it's the cost isn't an issue. But if they want to move to Battersea Park, state you know, power station, or wherever it's got to be, they would have to get the approval of seventy five percent of these individual shareholders. And and, and he, he's tried once before. He, he tried in twenty eleven, and he didn't get that approval. Um, so it, it's it's an unusual thing, um, but what's he? What does he get out of it? I, I just think he he gets the the kudos of owning you know a a globally known football club, which which that kudos you don't get from owning the world's second largest yacht, which which are, which he's which he's owned. Um, when when I when I used to teach in Barbados, he had it moored in in the local docks, and it was gobsmackingly huge. Mm. Yes, uh, Jamie Redknapp's been on it. He gave me a guided tour 
uh, of the bits he could remember. It didn't take long. Um, <laughs> the, the final part of the question then, which was my part, why was Chelsea's loss so much bigger in season 18, 19 than other seasons? Um, well, for, the, the reason being is that they were not in the Champions League. And, oh, right. Okay. Um, if you recall that they made it to the Europa League, um, they, they had a new manager um, in, uh, and they, they backed the manager. They spent a quarter of a billion pounds on players. Um, but if you can remember the names of any of those players, you, you're better than I. Um, th- th- I think it's fair to say that they haven't been a universal success. Uh, but certainly the manager was backed and Abramovich said, you know, if, if I'm going to recruit a new manager, um, the first thing I'm going to do is to effectively give him an open checkbook. But it, it didn't work. Well, it worked out. They got into a Champions League place, I think, last season. Um, and, and they won the Europa League. So it, it was it was a reasonable season by their standards. OK, now our next question comes from Martin Halliday. I like the sound of Martin Halliday because I think, I think, I think reading between the lines is a slight air of the curmudgeon in Martin. Um, Martin is a Liverpool fan. He's a cop season ticket holder. Uh, he pays £735 for that privilege. Um, he says in brackets, that doesn't seem a lot of money now, but back in the glory days of Roy Hodgson, and he's put glory days in inverted commas, so we know that it doesn't mean it. Uh, I'll point out, Martin, that for some clubs, Roy Hodgson is the glory days. Um, and Martin says, this is a bit I like, Martin says, I arrive as the teams come out, and I've gone long before they're in the shower. I, I occasionally buy a half-time pint. I never buy merchandise. Um that's the spirit, Martin. You you enjoy yourself when you go to the game, mate. Um, uh, but Martin's question is a, is a is a good point actually because I'm sure a lot of people have asked themselves this: Where does Martin's seven hundred and thirty-five pound actually, or what does Martin's uh, seven hundred and thirty-five pound actually do for the club? And he says, considering there are a lot more, as he puts it, mugs than me with more money, how efficient a pricing model are season tickets? I mean, in other words, would it be easier to to or more financially beneficial to sell each ticket for the game on a day-to-day basis? Um, Well, actually, I think he raises a very valid point, and a point which, to a large extent, Liverpool do take advantage of themselves. Liverpool have the smallest proportion of season tickets out of compared to capacity of any club in the Premier League. Um, And and as Martin points out... Oh yeah, they, they they've got twenty seven thousand. Wow! Yeah, okay. you, you know, yeah, we we've got we've got twenty four thousand at Brighton. Wow. So you know, it's it's crazy. Palace must have closed them twenty thousand themselves. Yeah, eighteen thousand. Yeah, yeah. So so because you've got you've got to set aside normally three thousand for away fans, and of course you do want some walk up fans um, as well, just just to you know bit to be able to offer people an experience they've not had before or for, for fans who are coming from overseas and so on. Um, but Liverpool's strategy is to have relatively low numbers of season tickets and the rest are available to members. And you pay 25, I think it's 25 or 35 pounds yeah, for your yeah. membership. And then twice a year, tickets go on sale and there's this almighty bun fight where people are fighting to be, you know, 17,000th in the queue and you have to wait for ages before before you get it's a bit like Glastonbury except at least with Glastonbury you, you don't have to pay for the privilege of being in the queue so that's what you get from your membership it's the privilege of being in the queue and, and then you fight out for the tickets so Liverpool make a lot of money um, from this particular 
uh, strategy. Um, in, in terms of the overall season ticket strategy, um, I, I think to a large extent, it, it depends upon the club uh, and where you are in the league and in which division you are in. Um, if, if you are in, in Leagues 1 or 2, um, you play, you're paying for 23 home games. There's going to be some days where it's a Tuesday night, the weather's appalling, um, and you're playing Stunthorpe or Southend or wherever it's when It doesn't particularly appeal, and you don't fancy going. Now, if everybody took that approach, could you see matches could be taking place in front of hundreds rather yeah. than thousands yeah. of fans yeah. Yeah. if it was purely down to walk-up? So, so what, what clubs benefit from in terms of season tickets is, A, they can be pretty certain that they know in advance what the, what the attendance is going to be. But also, of course, for the majority of clubs, you are paying for your season ticket in advance. Yeah. So therefore, because you're paying for it, you know, March, April, May, whatever it's going to be, that gives the club cash to pay the wages bills for June and July when they've got no other money coming in. Yeah. So it's from a cash flow point of view, and you know, I get very giddy about cash flow. Um, it, it, it has a logic to it in having um, ha- having a season ticket strategy um, from a maximising cash point of view, especially if you are a big club like Liverpool or Manchester United or Chelsea, wherever it's going to be, um, they, they could make more money um, by selling every match at Anfield or Old Trafford um, on an individual ticket basis because they've got the fan bases who are prepared to, to do that. Yeah, and uh, of course, the season ticket thing explains why you quite often see a game in the middle of February which is officially sold out, but you, you're, you're there and you know that there are huge blocks of people missing their season ticket holders who haven't turned up, but they count as being there, don't they? And there's the, the one thing that really annoys me about season tickets with, with big clubs, and I'm afraid Palace tried to enforce it, but couldn't really, is those nights when you can't turn up for a game, and especially midweek games when kids have got season tickets, when you can't just give them to a mate, you're expected to sell them back to the club and the club will sell the ticket on. And of course they make more money, but... It, it doesn't happen often enough for the club to turn a blind eye, but that's a question for another another pod. Um, Mark Ridley has set us a challenge here, Kieran. Mark Ridley has challenged us to see whether we can make a question about insurance interesting. Mark, at first glance, <laughs> no, we can't. Basically, I, I have a quick look before while 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 Mrs. Day is working out all the technical issues for me and flirting with Kieran on a, an outrageous basis. I, I have a look at the script to see if I can maybe insert something funny. I, I think I could be here all day. I'm, I'm in, bear in mind, I'm a professional comedy writer. Um, but basically, Mark, it's an interesting question, but it's it's not it's not actually it's a question. It's, it's I'm sure you'll make the answer interesting. But basically, using Harry Kane's leg injury as an example, Mark wants to know: Will the club be paying Harry Kane's wages or the insurance company? How much does a policy cost? And will players have their own individual policy, i.e., within the club? Will the club have a, one separate policy for each player or a massive policy for the whole club? And do players take out their own insurance? Right. If if we sort of look at those separately, um, there is a Premier League global policy. But uh, I I spoke to um, somebody at a club just to do a bit of research on this. um, And and I think it's it's a limited payout if a player um, does get injured and has to retire early. And and that payout (laughs) is actually quite low. Um, and, and that's, then that's, to, the, that's to the player that payout, not to the club. That that would be to the club. Oh, to the club. Um, oh, okay, yeah. right. Um, 
so so if you think about it, because it was a it was a Premier League uh, employee that I spoke to about this. Um, in terms of policies, there are policies available, but the premiums are very very high. Uh, because if, if you think about it, if, if you lost Harry Kane and the, the premium was through injury, which, you know, and a lot of players do retire through injury each year. Um, his his market value presently, probably in the region of 150 to 200 million. Um, can you see that the premium on that, we are talking millions of pounds. So therefore, so what, what I was told is, is that the clubs effectively self-insure. They take the view that if we've got a squad of 25 players, we're probably going to lose one every two seasons through premature injury. How much is that going to cost us? What will be the cost of the premiums over the two years? Actually, it's cheaper just to just to keep your fingers crossed, crossed and hope that it's going to be a player who isn't Harry Kane that, that's that's subject to this. Um, so there, there are pre, there are some clubs that go down the insurance route, but the majority choose not to do so, simply because they they've costed it out and, and they feel that the premiums being levied are too expensive. You know, it's a bit like a, you know if, if you buy a television and they're always trying to get you to have a, an extended warranty for a ridiculous sum of money. Um, it, it's simply that they're overpriced the premiums, and as a consequence to that, most clubs take the view that they'd rather reinvest the money instead on. Uh, you know, better training facilities, better better physio facilities, which will reduce the chances of players getting injured in the first place. What I mean, that's all very. I mean, that's there's a certain cynicism in that club's approach, really, because Harry Kane, I imagine, is is financially protected. I mean, but if you're looking at a player in the Championship or a, a League One club, will they have their own insurance policies, and or have the days long gone? when a player gets injured and uses his insurance to buy a pub. So what happens to a player who who suddenly finds himself out of the game? Well, I know jockeys. That I was once told by an insurance company that the, the people that are hardest to insure are jockeys and comedians. Uh, jockeys because of the nature of their job and comedians because of the irresponsible nature of their lifestyle. But it, it seems to... <laughs> and, and because of spending a lot of time in cars um, with the lifestyle. Uh but that does seem. I mean, that's that seems unfortunate. And if if you if they're keeping their fingers crossed, and you're the player who unfortunately walks under the ladder and gets hurt, that seems a bit unfair, doesn't it? What happened? What, where's the recourse for a player like that? Well, I mean, the players can take out insurance policies themselves. I think that there is some support from the PFA, um, but also clubs would would probably be obliged to pay up their contracts, so that there will be some financial protection as far as the player is concerned, um, and, and that's written into a contract, that there is an issue if you're a League One or League Two player, because as, as we've discussed at, you know, at length before, they're normally all on one or two-year contracts, so the amount of the payout could be quite low. Um, but if you are one of those players, the chances are you don't have a lot of spare money around. You know, if, um, and, and because of the precarious nature of the industry, from an individual's perspective, the premiums would be high um, to effectively give you a sort of, you know, it's not life insurance insurance as such, but it's it's uh, critical injury insurance. If you if you take a look at those, because I, I took a look at those when you know, when my kids were born, and I think you know, if anything happens to me over the next few years, what could be, when, when I costed it out, it was just ridiculous. So for, 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 an, for a footballer where um, you've not just got, you know, the, the, the potential issues of getting, 
traditional diseases, you know, cancer, lung disease, uh, things of that nature, which could tail your, your career, uh, because it's a physical uh, career. It's a, it's a physical job um, where, where there are tackles taking place all the time. Um, it, it's simply not worth it from, from a, an individual player's perspective, unless they, they are very, very risk averse and they're, and they're prepared to pay the high amounts involved. Yeah, I, I, I can reassure. Nothing's going to happen to you, Kieran. Uh, not unless you go back to Moscow, of course. But if, if you stay away from there, you should be fine, insurance-wise. Um, Alex Gerrard, who I'm now paranoid that I know Alex Gerrard. Now you say we know Alex Shields. Somehow, psychologically, I feel I know Alex Gerrard. Um, Alex's question is: Season twenty twenty one, it could be business as usual. It could be behind closed doors, or it could be, as Alex says, in a biodome in the New Forest. Uh, if it's options B or C, uh, and I like option C, the Centre Park season, um, yes. <laughs> what will happen to season ticket, man? I mean, that's a fair question. I, I know as Palace fans we've been talking about this, will will clubs be starting to look for season ticket money for next season or can they simply not do that? I know there's been a lot of issues around refunds. Some fans think they've been pressured into into not taking the refund and to giving it back to the club in some way or form or other to the academy or to the foundation of whichever club it is but so presumably football clubs can't even begin to plan for the season tickets and which is off the back of what you told us earlier about how important it is for their cash flow could be another problem couldn't it well i think you'll find the majority of the clubs were selling season tickets but many have now suspended sales because uh, I know I renewed mine at the, you know early March, because um, at the time I think the perception was well you know we locked down for a couple of months and we returned to some form yeah. of normality. Uh, that is looking less and less likely. Uh, club clubs can take the money, and also you know I think I think we we spoke about this for clubs such as Partick Thistle, and yeah. I know I think uh, Tranmere fans they've rallied around the club and they've said. Well, actually, the most important thing to me is that Tranmere Rovers or Partick Thistle or Palace or Brighton, whoever it's going to be, that that club is still in existence in 2022. Yeah. Am I in a position where I can buy the season ticket? And I, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll say this through gritted teeth. I'm, I'm not going to get very much back for it, if anything at all. Um, and effectively, it's, it becomes a glorified donation to the club. Now, legally, the club would have to offer that money back um, if if the ruling is that we, we can't have mass gatherings in you know, real, realistically what we're looking at mid-September for a start of the season. I think yeah. it would be the earliest if, if the, uh, uh, the, the Premier League is due to finish on August the 1st. So uh, at present, clubs can legitimately take cash from fans now I think they would try. They would probably give a caveat at the time, um, but if they can't offer matches, they would be legally obliged to repay that money. Um, once, once yeah, we we have right. sort of you know a, a bit more clarity as to where we're going uh, season wise. Okay, uh, two more questions. Uh, the first is from Christophe Lavens. Uh, I hope I pronounced that properly, Christophe. Uh, Christophe is in Belgium. Uh, I wish I was. I, I love Belgium. Uh, there's a little bar in Ghent. It's one of my favourite places in the whole world. Now, Christoph's question, you'll like this, Kieran. It's a, it's a proper old-fashioned week two of the pod in the, uh, accountancy question. And basically, Christoph said, investors spent about £400 million, as we know, buying 10% of Man City. If you look at the stock exchange value of other clubs, and 
I, can, I feel like, again, I should apologise to Crystal because I can imagine before our pod he wouldn't, wouldn't have dreamt of looking at the stock exchange value of other clubs. Christoph's been using lockdown wisely, but he says so Juventus is worth about a billion, Lazio is worth about 90 million. So his question is is, is Manchester overvalued or are those Italian clubs undervalued? Because that's a huge discrepancy, isn't it, between the, the value of Manchester and those clubs? It is, except they, they didn't spend four hundred million buying ten percent of Manchester City. They spent four hundred million buying ten percent of the City Football Group. Ah, okay. And that, of course, owns eight clubs around the world: you know, Uruguay, Japan, India, Belgium, uh, you know, Australia, New York, and so on. Um, so you are buying far more. That the company which did the investment, which is a company called Silver Lake, it's a tech company, and I think it, it, it is seeing um, the the cash flows from football, especially those clubs who are regulars in the Premier League, um, who are regulars as far as the Champions League are concerned. Clearly, this is a bit of a moot point given City for the hearing coming up soon. Yeah. Um, they they can see the opportunities to generate more cash using technology than the traditional TV. Um, you know, and, and that's why I think the Amazon experiment is, is intriguing. Um, so they, they, you, you are getting more than just Manchester City in that particular purchase. I agree with you, but I think Christoph's still got a part. I mean, they wouldn't, if Man City weren't part of the, that group, they wouldn't be spending that much money. I mean, Man City is the, the jewel in that crown, isn't it? And that's, the, that's where the, what they're attracted to. I mean, the, the rest they get kind of as a bonus thrown in, don't they? Maybe New York, but you know, I don't think they'd be that fussed about the club in India or the club in Belgium, would they? Um, no, no. I mean, the, the advantages to City in, in having these um, overseas hubs, for want of a better phrase, is that it, it allows them to park players to get consistency in terms of training um, and and things of this nature. Um, you, you are paying a premium to get a club from the Premier League, though, because because the Premier League's TV revenues yeah. far exceed those of Italy. So that would have been a contributory factor as well. Um, and um, with Juventus, um, you know, Juventus, I think they don't own their stadium in Turin, and the capacity is actually quite low. It's, it's only about 40,000. Uh, I, I could easily be corrected there because it's, it's not really my field. Um, and, and as far as Lazio being worth ninety million pounds, well, Lazio don't make money, right? Um, and again, it's a, yeah, it's a, it's a fairly dilapidated uh, infrastructure you're buying into. Whereas at least with City, they've got world class training facilities. They've got a you know, a stadium which is at fifty four thousand could go to sixty thousand quite easily, um, and, and they're pretty much guaranteed a Champions League place. Do you know that talking about Italian football has reminded me of a question I've been meaning to ask you since Pod One. I, I thought that it'd be a clever, intelligent question to ask somebody I've never met before while I was gauging what sort of person you were, um, and I'm still constantly surprised by the sort of person you turned out to be. Um, I know Guy will be listening to this while the 16 year old intern edits it, so we'll put this down for the for next. I'll ask you about the finances of stadium sharing in Italy because I, I thought that was a really Clever question at a time when I thought we had two weeks of this pod at most. But, um, so did I. Turned out to be surprisingly successful. Um, our, our last question comes from Lewis Moore. Now, Lewis Moore is a, a Middlesbrough fan. Uh, I have to say, Lewis, there's always been one thing that bothers me. The missing O in Middlesbrough has bothered me since I was a kid. I could never understand why there's no O between the B and the R, but yeah, I was a strange kid. Um, 
this is an interesting question from a, a Middlesbrough fan. As Lewis says, we get a, we get a lot of positive feedback. So Middlesbrough get a lot of positive feedback about how the club is run, especially the chairman. But do the figures back up these claims compared to other clubs in the Championship? And he's absolutely right about the positive feedback. I mean, I think Steve Gibson is probably the most liked club chairman amongst. The, the pundits and commentators are always talking about the stability at Middlesbrough and his reluctance to sack managers, sometimes when it's clear to Middlesbrough fans that he should have done. But that's a good question because, to me, they, they are one of those clubs where I would always go, yeah, good club, well-run club, but am I right or am I just assuming that? Um, well, I've got my Middlesbrough spreadsheet in front of me. Uh, this would probably <laughs> not surprise you. Um, it, so I, I've got Middlesbrough for the whole of the last decade, um, of which they spent one year in the Premier League. They had four years of parachute payments and they managed to lose um, about 400 grand a week for the whole of the Whoa. decade. Wow. So, you know, that's, that, that's how significant it is because, because they, they, they'd spent nine years in the championship. And I think we, you know, we've, that we've established that the, the championship is sort of the, this clown car from a financial perspective <laughs> of, uh, of, a, of a division. Uh, I mean, they managed to recover, I'd say, about half of that from player sales. But even so, you know, to lose £185 million in a decade is, is a hell of an achievement. Uh, I mean, Steve, Steve Gibson, I think one of the reasons why he's liked, he's a local lad. Um, he, he's put in, he's effectively put in about £170 million into the club itself. Um, and, he, and he does this via um, a, a company called Gibson O'Neill. So his his success is in is in haulage and things of that nature. Um, Borough loses. And, and, and I went into sort of some of the small print because I, every year I was looking at Borough's accounts and, and I was looking at their tax bill. And they kept having these negative tax bills. Um, and and it, and it said that was something down to something called group relief. I googled group relief, <laughs> and it was it wasn't I, quite I tried, what I was expecting. I dread to think. <laughs> <laughs> okay, oh blimey! Um, but then I went to the HMRC website and googled group relief there, sort of, and that, that was a bit more a bit more I'd been anticipating. But my, my heart was a fluttering initially. Um, so uh, yeah, I mean, Borough loses money, but um, that it's managed to transfer its tax losses in some of the years to the rest of Steve Gibson's, which is sort of acted as a parachute in terms of uh, his commitment. But yeah, he, he's, yeah, you, you can't deny that uh, Steve Gibson has put his 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 heart and soul financially into that club. Um, but it's a very expensive business doing so for anybody who's supporting a club in 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 the championship for for any long period of time. So let me get this straight. So Middlesbrough Football Club are, are considered just one part of the of the Gibson O'Neill empire, for want of a better word. It's not it's not considered as a separate entity in its own right. It's it's just one of his assets. Is that right? Yeah, it, it, Middlesbrough Football Club is effectively uh, owned one hundred percent by Gibson O'Neill. Yeah. And Gibson O'Neill is owned by Steve Gibson and presumably somebody called O'Neill. Yeah, you'd guess, wouldn't you? Um, I'm, I'm I mean, smart. Those, those losses are... I mean, this is a club who the decade before had... You know, they won trophies. They were high profile. They were, they were buying big name players. And then suddenly you get a decade of £400,000 a week, did you say? Yeah. That's, yep. ast- um, that's astonishing. It's... It, I mean, for people who who haven't listened to this pod since the start, it's almost impossible to get your head round 
figures like that and, and believe that any company is still actually going as a concern, isn't it? It is, but I think if you, if you take a look at the championship as a whole, we, we've got these these individuals who are, are literally doing that. Each Monday morning, the first thing they do is, is they write out a cheque for three, four, five hundred grand. Wow. Um, and they do that week in, week out, year in, year out, until they get to the Premier League. And when they get to the Premier League, they get one year of profits and they start losing money again. Wow, OK. Um well, that's slightly depressing. I always try and look for a cheery story to finish. Maybe I should look at the questions a bit more closely before I work out the order of them, uh, says he, pretending that he gets involved until he starts puts the headphones on. Um, uh, thank you, Kieran. Uh, I always enjoy the, the – well, I enjoy the, every pod. You know, I, I count the, the hours until we can speak to each other again. Uh, it's a shame we can't actually see each other, but I think it's now time to reveal – to the people at home that we have in fact recorded this naked the pair of us um, it's it's not it's not an experiment i intend to repeat especially with the window open and the, the cat in the, the cat in the mood she's in uh, uh, um this is a, a it's not on the script i'm improvising now the, the price of football is an adaptive production if you have questions for our questions pod uh and again if, if you don't we're in trouble but you, well, i know you do because we've got a queue and they're always very good questions um and don't forget they can be as specific as you want so uh, palace fans and middlesbrough fans of i'm not going to try and say specific again because that seems to have annoyed the cat even more there's a lot of door banging isn't the baroness in a bad mood in your in your house i think so i think so yeah, yeah. <laughs> a lot, i've never been, <laughs> i've never been more, more aware of doors banging in your house and are you are you not meant to be podding today is this are you in one of your all day no. media things again well i'm i'm doing a uh, a preston north end podcast in an hour uh, no, the, the dog's the dog has opened the door to the room in which I record, so it means that the, all the noises from the rest of the house are coming through. <laughs> I've got an angry cat. You've got a dog opening the door and going out again when he sees you're not wearing any clothes. Um, yes, questions at priceoffootball.com is what I was aiming towards. Uh, thank you for listening. Uh, if you're having your six-person barbecue in your garden tomorrow, and again, doesn't occur to anybody in this government that not everybody in the country's got a garden but there you are or indeed six friends in my case but that's a different matter <laughs> um, and we'll talk to you again uh, on thursday thanks a lot take care now kieran bye-bye stay safe stay healthy boys and girls I'm for the